Pregnancy and birth are, are very emotional experiences. What I would like you to take away from today's discussion is the importance of that emotional connection during pregnancy among all of those people around the pregnant woman and the baby. And when I say emotional connection, what I mean is that the parents, they know how they feel, um, their own feelings, but they also understand and feel what the baby's feeling. So that, that both are true. And also that the caregivers who are taking care of the mother and the baby and the father, that the caregivers are aware of their feelings. Welcome to In Contact with the ACO. I'm Dr. Chris Burrett. This presentation features the care of a patient by one of the ACO doctors who practices a different kind of psychiatry. There is a new case presented live each month at the ACO campus near Princeton, New Jersey. Each podcast episode is from the recording of a presentation. These are real patients, but their privacy is protected. If you're interested in attending, you can meet the doctors and join in on the discussion afterwards. You can connect with us and learn more at a different kind of psychiatry.com or organomy.org. In this episode, you'll hear Dr. Susan Marcel discuss two patient cases. The first is about a patient she helped as a medical student, which highlights the importance of emotional connection and expression during childbirth. The second touches on the importance of the doctor patient relationship, but also how Dr. Marcel helped her patient address her fears and clear her confusion. We're once again happy to bring you more, so stay tuned after the presentation to listen in on the audience discussion. So the first patient I want to tell you about is a patient named Jean, who was the very first patient I ever worked with in my first medical school rotation in an OBGYN hospital up in Erie, Pennsylvania. I was a third year medical student. and. I was assigned to her to, um, she was giving birth to her first child, and she was very scared, and she just wanted to talk. So I was assigned to go in and take her medical history and ask a whole checklist of questions, and then do a physical exam, and that would probably take a little bit under an hour. And I had been trained to ask the checklist of questions like past medical history, her surgeries, um, her medications, any allergies. Does she smoke? Does she drink? Did she have any problems during the pregnancy? So I started writing down the, um, the information pretty mechanically. And I was like a well-trained robot, you know, a little surgery student with a little white jacket. And um, I was not connected at all emotionally with Jean. And as I went through the interview, though, and every time I looked up at her, something started to happen between us. Like I could feel something changing. And I would ask her another question, and I couldn't help but notice this kind of sad, frightened look came into her eyes or on her face. And the more I saw it, the more I could feel it and then perceive it. And then my attention began to focus on her emotional state rather than the checklist that I was assigned to find out. So we spent the next two and a half hours talking uh, in between her contractions. She was in early labor, and she slowly started to tell me a very moving story about her first pregnancy, which she lost several years ago. And she had never shared that story, really, with anybody in depth, and she was still very deeply affected by it. And I'm, I'm 
sitting there in the chair next to her bed and thinking, why is she telling me all this? You know, I was a total stranger, and I wondered, you know, what, what is this? And she was concerned about having this baby and the health of this child, and she was anxious about not knowing what to do during labor, delivery, and then when she brought the baby home. And I thought, where is the father? Why was she alone without any friends or family in this delivery suite? So I quietly asked myself these questions, and I saw her ear, her eyes tear up, and her shoulders were kind of tight. And then she started, as she told me the story, she started relaxing her shoulders down, and her face became sadder looking, and her mouth was kind of downturned, and she turned her body towards me, and she started weeping and sobbing very quietly. And her breath got deeper, and she sighed in great grief over the loss of her first pregnancy. And at the end of our time together, she just tenderly thanked me for listening and said that she felt better for just sharing the story of her fear and her grief, and it had burdened her so for the past few years. So I left that hospital room. I was very moved. I was teary, crying, and I couldn't believe what had just happened. And as I walked out, the staff scolded me for taking so long, and... They were busy setting up an IV pole and gowning and gloving and all the, you know, the instruments one might need for, you know, delivery. And I'm thinking, how could the staff not see this woman's sadness or mine? You know, that we, something happened. And why was the IV more important than this woman's grief and fear? And why didn't anybody else try to listen to her but, like, the lowly third-year medical student who didn't know this woman at all? So left a very deep impression on me. Jean went on to successfully deliver her baby, and she went home two days later, very tired, but feeling well. We had both connected, and we were both changed in that process. That, that patient left such a deep impression on me. But I was left mystified by the absence of that emotional connection between Jean and the staff. And especially if they may have known her obstetrical history that she had lost the first pregnancy. And over the years of my training, I often remember my first OB patient, Jean, and I wondered how we as the medical profession, how can we improve the care of, of you know, pregnant women and newborns? And what is it that moms and dads-to-be need from the caregivers and from their families? And then what gets in the way of connecting with them emotionally? And what effect does this have on on the baby? And can we listen differently to pregnant women? And I think these are questions that have to constantly be asked. So the way Jean and her baby were treated just seemed really off to me, and it lacked compassion. It was cold. I mean, Jean said to me, I'm scared to give birth. She was terrified. And she was aware of her own feelings, and she was moved to tell me about her sadness. And my response was to just sit there and listen and say, it's okay to be afraid. You know, you, together we'll get through this. You don't have to do this by yourself. So the busy excitation of the monitors and the IV and the staff and the hustle bustle, it interfered with the staff being able to perceive Jean, but also it made Jean hide. She couldn't let herself be open and, and say what she was thinking because she perceived all the flurry and the noise around her. So when I sat down by the bedside, 
something changed. There was this spontaneous thing that happened, and it just allowed her to relax and share her story and then deliver her baby. So the second patient I'd like to tell you about is a story of a patient that I'm currently taking care of. Her name's Anne. And 12 years ago, Anne consulted with me for a second opinion uh, regarding a very severe depression that she had. And she and her husband wanted very much to have children. And she had been diagnosed with something called bipolar affective disorder. And it manifested mainly by a very severe depression. And once once in a while, she'd get very anxious and manicky. She was taking three medications to control her mood and her depression. And her psychiatrist told her she could never have children because of the bipolar diagnosis and the medicine she was on. Because the medicine could cause birth defects in the baby. So she was devastated by this news. And his comments only served to deepen her depression. And his always, she'd always imagined herself as a mother. And this was a great loss to her. And her psychiatrist insensitively delivered recommendations, sent her into a really dark period of her life, probably the darkest of her life. I mean, his stated opinion hurt her very deeply, the way it was delivered and what he said. And she withdrew in fear, and she never trusted anything else that he said after that. Technically, the psychiatrist was giving her accurate and good information. And she, he was treating her based on the diagnostic and statistical manual that psychiatrists use to kind of label illnesses and guidelines. And, they, and he was giving her medication appropriate for her symptoms, but there was no perception on his part as to the effect of what he said to her and, and you know, how it made her feel. So she asked me very poignantly, would you help me? So Anne and I talked a lot about her fears and my concerns about her diagnosis and if she became pregnant, being so depressed, and if she was on very powerful medication, what would that look like? What risk to her and to her baby? And we were both very scared of the prospect. And I made no promises to her at all. Um, I was very clear and honest with her about you know, what my reservations were, um, and if I lowered her medicine, say, or got her on different medication, I told her I'd be willing to try, but that I had great reservations. And we worked together for the next three to four years in therapy. She came about every two to three weeks. And she began to tell me the story of her childhood and her, her about her parents and her work as a school teacher, which she loved very much. And she was very maternal towards the kids in her care at the school she worked in. She started telling me of her deep love for her husband and how much they wanted to start a family. And she, we also began to realize how she tended to avoid her emotions. And she did this by trying to control everything. And that was her main way of avoiding feelings. And the other thing we learned was that when she cried, it gave her a sense of relief. So I prescribed various medications for her that she could tolerate, but that would have a minimal effect on the baby. And it was a very challenging experience for me as a prescribing physician, but also as a psychotherapist, because I was afraid of relapse. And there was a great deal of fear and frustration and sadness in Anne 
and her moods would go very low, and then she'd pop back up, and sometimes she would call me anxiously in between sessions, and it was almost like she just wanted to make sure I was there. Are you there? Are you there? And through all this, she developed trust in our relationship. She knew that I really took her seriously, and I got it. I understood what she was going through. She began to have longer episodes of stability and a sense of wellness, and her depressive periods got shorter and shorter in duration. So by the fourth year of our working together, we agreed that maybe she could try to become pregnant. And she conceived and delivered a baby girl. Um, And her depression cleared considerably after she delivered. And she could tolerate much more of those deeper emotions. She didn't just have to suppress them down or medicate them away. She could actually feel them and express them. She was more able to connect with me emotionally, with her husband, and more importantly, with her beautiful daughter. About one and a half years after her daughter was born, she said to me in a session, "Um, Dr. Marcel, motherhood saved my life. Anne needed somebody to trust, somebody to help her with the fear and the mistrust. And we connected on a very deep emotional level, and it helped her face the depression and her fear and her anger and sadness. She's currently on three medications, very low dose. And I'm happy to say Anne's daughter is seven years old and is the most beautiful little girl you could imagine. Um, And recently Anne's husband came in for treatment with me um, because he had some, some issues and symptoms. And that's helped the whole family function differently. Uh, which is ultimately much better for, for their daughter. So, so fostering trust is right from the start. That's my prime directive. That warm, trusting doctor-patient relationship that we developed allowed Anne to enter therapy and to begin facing what she was trying to control and run from. And as she progressed, she actually became a much better mother Uh, and finally because of this her husband came and he's a better father and slowly the whole family changed because of her courage and our work together so thank you what you what you said about when you was patient in like the mother like I think her name was Anne or something Mm -hmm. Um, I think with that like I can I can kind of relate to that because it's it's very true. Like sometimes it's it's periods in my life where I like I don't I get stuck and I just don't know what to do. Like as a, like I'm a first time mom. I never raised a child. It's my first time raising a child. So it's just like sometimes I don't know what I'm doing mm-hmm. and I just get very scared. Sure. So yeah, it's hard work. Yeah. There's a few things that that stand out to me about Dr. Marcel's presentation. Um, You know, there's a lot. One thing that stands out is what Dr. Marcel said about as she's talking with Jean about, you know, really looking at her rather than just taking in information. You know, um, if she wasn't able to make eye contact to look at her face, she wouldn't have a sense of of how Jean was feeling. Um, And then when you see what you see on her face, you have to, you know, connect with it and, and respond. And I think that's what Dr. Marcel did really well. You know, she, 
um, connected with her emotionally and, and allowed her to uh, feel comfortable enough to express her fear. And it sounded like Jean very much needed to express that fear so she could go on to, to deliver her baby. Um, and uh, somehow the, the rest of the staff, whether they're just by going through the motions, they missed the opportunity to really connect with her. And, um, you know, it really begs the question of what is the medical personnel's role in treating a pregnant mother? Is it to simply get the baby out of the womb and bring it into the world? Or is it to be there for the mother? Is it there to foster the connection between baby and mom? Um, so there's a lot there. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, some can come in to say I'm depressed but um, or I'm anxious, but really what they need is to feel someone they can trust to express themselves. And it sounded like for Jean that was part of uh, what she needed. I think my view of myself <clears throat> as a third-year medical student was I was the lowest of the, on the rung, the ladder, and I didn't, it was my very first patient, I don't know that I understood my role, but now I teach medical students at Jefferson, and I see the vital role that they play. They often have the time to sit and listen and make eye contact and, and perceive and connect in a way that, you know, a busy intern who's been on call the previous night before can't do that they're too tired or they've got other duties um, so I appreciated how my role at the time I didn't appreciate it but now I do I had the two and a half hours to sit and listen to Jean um, and a doula has time to, to just sit and be you know with a, a mom who's about to deliver yeah and with a doula and other staff there's there's training of our role you know uh, is to be there for mother to understand what she wants, mm -hmm. and sometimes that gets lost uh, for the medical process of um, what fears do you have, what concerns do you have, mm -hmm. who are you as a person, what what do you need? Mm -hmm. um, I think oftentimes for an OBGYN visit, that those questions don't mm -hmm. come up. It's mm -hmm. you know, how much do you weigh? How are you feeling? Or do you have any pain? Um, That's it. That's it. So good. Yeah. Other impressions people have about pregnancy, birth, generally? The question about the trust thing, is, is there a trust that is hard to explain between the fetus and the mother before the baby is born? And how, what does that look like? That's a great question. <laughs> um, what was the question? Whether there's a trust connection between the baby who's still inside the mother yeah. and the mother. Yeah, mm -hmm. it is. I know it is. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. it is. So that relationship starts very early, yeah. even before delivering the baby. Mm -hmm. yeah. There's actually a study I read earlier that um, there's a woman named Catherine, um, oh, like in our name, Catherine. Hanks. She is a Columbia University Medical Center researcher, and she's, she took 50 women and has been following the women through their pregnancy and their babies at four months and now they're about two years and to look at their stress level. So stressed out, depressed, anxious mom, their children are less resilient and show more reactivity, more colicky at four months and then at two years. And so there's something about that early bond 
you know, if there's a warm relationship, you know, that's happening between the baby and the mom, but if the mom's very depressed and anxious, it looks like it definitely affects the child as, you know, in the womb, but we can measure it at four months and two years. So. Pregnancy and birth have a profound effect on women and families, on, on fathers. I have a patient who's turning 62. She uh, lost uh, a pregnancy like over 25 years ago, and every every spring it still affects her. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a, a solid week where she's um, profoundly affected 25 years later, and um, I think that can get lost and. Just our our thinking about uh, pregnancy um, very much affects uh, families and, and parents. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I'm just thinking of you know Jean again. You know she had a miscarriage, and how did that play a role? I know I had encouraged her to seek help when she left the hospital to maybe find somebody to talk to, uh, but at the time I didn't know the services in the community where I was working, but, you know, encourage her, you know, find someone to talk to. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. I always wondered what happened to her, you know. Yeah. so many years ago. I think you, you say that, and it makes me think, I'm sure she remembers you. Um, you know, that, and I, I want to hope so. <laughs> I believe so. I think, you know, you talked the first story, two and a half hours of a connection, and in four years, but I think it made as much of an impact on both. Yes. Um, that somebody stopped to care and to talk. Yeah. Um, so many times, hustle and bustle of you know of a checklist. You know, look, I got to get through my checklist. Yes. Um, that's how I was trained. Go, yeah. go, 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 go. Yeah. I you know had to go on. I had other duties, and I, I'm glad I didn't leave. I'm glad I stayed and just hung in there and uh, left a profound impression on me. And taking care of pregnant women is something I love to do, and I think it has. I can thank Jean for that. Um, you know, it's one of my first early medical school impression. Yeah, you know, thinking about the, this medical, you know, profession, treating, treating, treating mothers, treating all, all patients very mechanically. Part of that is also they're using their authority to 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 convince to convince mothers and, and other patients that they are machines and, mm-hmm. and distorting their, you know, well, well, this is an example from a long time ago, but, but I think there are things now that they used to prescribe uh, very, very detailed uh, 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 spoon and dropper fed diets to, to babies on this on a strict timetable and so forth. And, and yeah, that was in the 50s and the 60s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think about your patient uh, Anne, you know, talking about her fears of not being able to get pregnant. I don't know if this is uh, her, what she said about motherhood saving her life, but it is. Um, she wanted to trust herself and to, um, to to face her fears of of pregnancy and delivery, and I, that's my sense of what she means when she says she's that. A, she's one of the most courageous patients I've ever worked with. She's got that quiet courage of. Okay, here's the problem. I have to do something. But she never knows what to do, so she looks to me to kind of guide her through that. And that's been my role, is to just see her, help her organize her thoughts. And she really wanted to have a child. And she said she's worked on many other things, too, over the years in our work together. Um, 
she trusts, I, I helped her trust herself, I think, that what she wanted was essential and vital to her own life and as in her own life, mother could save her life. She was very depressed. And I don't know where she'd be if she didn't have her daughter. I shudder to think about that. Um, so. One thing that, that stands out is, um, you know, uh, you expressed your concerns, your fears, and you also had the opportunity to do that because my guess is the psychiatrist who saw her before wasn't in therapy with her. Um, no, it was just medication management. And she didn't really have anybody to talk to about what she was experiencing emotionally. Which can be the, um, the typical routine these days. You know, you see a psychiatrist and sometimes you may also see a therapist, but they're two different people. And so if there's real concerns about the medication, like in this case, um, who do you really have to trust to discuss the, the pros and cons of different uh, routes you could go or just how overwhelming it can be? So it sounded like it was vital that you were there for both, um, both, both of those prescribing roles. medication and being there for, as your therapist. Yeah, yeah I, I always look forward to her coming in her sessions just because I knew where it was going and where it could go, but I was scared also. So I had many different emotional um, responses to her, but I think that helped because what I was feeling often was what she was feeling. You know, her fear, I would be afraid, but to use that as kind of a compass to help guide the treatment. Um, and ultimately, you know, ended up in a very positive outcome. And uh, I've met her daughter. Her daughter is just this beautiful Cinderella princess kind of seven-year-old that uh, is just delightful. And I think you know she wouldn't be here if this mother didn't have that courage to to try. And I helped her with that. So, yeah. With the aspect of time management, being a medical professional. Um, in the sense of you need to be a psychiatrist and do with the um, medication management, but also be a psychotherapist. Um, that takes more time with a patient. You sure. have less meetings with them. Going back to your clinical rotation with Jean, you know, you spent two hours with a patient, and that was borderline unacceptable because that's <laughs> wasting time, even though it was extremely <laughs> effective and valuable. So where does the balance of you know treat as many people as possible because you have a medical duty to serve as many people? but also have the quality of care that comes with establishing the trust in psychotherapy. Well said. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have the answer. <laughs> um, but we need, we need more doctors and therapists and doulas and nurses and midwives. Some of the uh, midwives and doctors that I talk with, they, the, doctor, the OBGYNs refer to the midwives as, uh, as Jedis. <laughs> Because they midwives did the bulk of the work, and the because there weren't enough OBGYNs, uh, the hospital I worked at there was one OBGYN for the whole hospital. This gentleman was on call all the time. It's a poor family. I don't know how he did it, but he loved it. He was good at it, but he was busy. So that time management question. But I think it would have been better if it had just been explained. Like, okay, here's the hierarchy. I had to figure it out as I went. But I had the two hours. But an OBGYN may not have the two hours. Um, and should we expect that of doctors? And I, I don't think time-wise that would probably work in our system. But I, I think even in two minutes with a patient, you can establish eye contact and just kind of connect and, and open someone up who, who might not be feeling so, so good at the moment. You can recognize that. But that takes the OBGYN being able to know how he or she is feeling. Um, that may or may not be happening. I don't know. I think also 
the short answer is you have to be aware that that's even happening as the doctor or the medical professional. Sure. Um, so in the short term, you can do whatever it is to be available or to, to manage your time in a way that's helpful for the patient to ask yourself, what is my role? Meaning, am I here to help heal the patient? Am I here to be supportive? Or is it just to, um, like I said earlier, is it just to have the baby come out with 10 fingers and 10 toes? Or is it, is it more than that? But I think the, the bigger answer is reevaluating the system that we have. And I think we have seen that over time. And Dr. Marcel and I were talking about just the differences in her delivering her children. We had a child uh, December 2017, we're expecting another one. And there are a lot of changes that have happened. Um, I think in some ways a lot of, there is a lot of positive movement in um, maternal care and, and pregnancy and delivery. Uh, I think it can still get better. Um, I think it's also different people are on different pages. So you know, the hospital may have rules, individual medical staff may have their own feelings. Um, you may have a doula or not, you may, work with midwives, so um, I think we're in the middle of kind of that changing. Um, so I'm hoping it will continue to, to go in a good direction. Uh, for instance, like uh, where we're going to be delivering our daughter in the summer, they have this golden hour that after the baby is delivered, there's no, there's no testing, you know, typically it was you take the baby off and you do all this stuff. And then when they're done, okay, maybe mom can have the baby back, right? And now it's this hour of, of no one's going to disturb mom and baby. Let them let the baby just sit on mom's chest and, and breastfeed and, and connect, which I think is, is amazing. And that's actually what we had for our last daughter. But, you know, it's funny because we were in the midst of it all, and we were looking at pictures the other day. You know, like uh, iPhone, now they have that three-second video that's like a moving picture. We were watching it. It was a picture of just our daughter on, on my wife's chest. And you hear in the background during the video, like, oh, when was her due date? And it was the nurse, like, I said, like, buzzing around like a bee. Um, <laughs> oh, like, what, who's what? asked, like, what does that matter? You know, the baby was just delivered. <laughs> Who cares about the expected due date? Um, Gotta fill a form out to be Excuse me. So it's almost, you know, in the, the past authoritarian time, it was, this is the way things go. All right, you're going to follow us, and you're almost... Um, feared into doing whatever the doctor says or whatever the institution says. And now it's almost like people are clueless. Like, why would a nurse ask that question? Like, it's nothing to do with what's going on right now. And um, so in some ways, that's now the problem we face is just people are just out of it and, and don't recognize that the importance of mother and baby being together. And um, so I'm hopeful things will change, but I think that's what we, we have to face with. Well, one of the reasons I'm here is because not only am I passionate about this as a clinician, as a psychiatrist, but as a first-time father, as I'm going to have another child, and um, there's still a lot that I'm learning about this whole process, and it can be scary. You know, as a physician father, then it's extra scary because I have in the back of my mind. You know too much. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, you know, as a father, um, my wife is going to most of her... Um, appointments with whether it's the midwife or an OB um, and I went to a lot of her appointments but I don't really have the same relationship that she has and so I get afraid you know can I trust this person so really what I have to do is trust my wife that she can trust the clinician and um, you know kind of face my own fears and and um, 
not let my own anxiety become infectious to my wife because she's calm. Well, I'm anxious, but I'll, I'll deal with that separately without, um, you know, giving it to her. But uh, it can be a very scary process, even with uh, everything we know and, and modern medical uh, abilities. Mm-hmm. Well, I have one other wonder. I mean, how, just answering that question, how can we better better take care of fathers to be? You That's know? a good question. Because the focus is all on the mom and the baby. Um, the dads, you know, where are they in, in the process, and what can we do better for them? I don't know. I don't know that that's... I think about it. I don't know if it's formally thought about it, but there are parenting classes, you know, after the baby's born, and there's, you know, the fathers are included in the, you know, prenatal visits and classes, but, but what do dads really need? I don't know. Well, when I was growing up, fathers, when, I, when the delivery process came up, they always sent them to go boil water. <laughs> I, never, I never understood why the father had to go boil water or whatever. And, it, and then I learned that it was you know, just to get him out of the way and make him feel like he was doing, was doing something without being open to maybe a more inclusive aspect of the father being um, you know, right, right, right there and, and, and maybe being taught or advised about what his role can be. I mean, I remember the first time when, when our first born son was born, and I, I mean, I held him in my arms for the first time, and these big eyes are looking up at me. It was, uh, 26 years later, I, it, it, you know, that vision is still there in my mind about that, you know, initial experience of, of what that all felt like. It was really great to be in, in the room and, and, and be a part of that whole process. Mm-hmm. I think that maybe part of the answer is just asking fathers what they need and really finding out. You know, the thing that pops in my head is that these days I think there is more involvement with fathers with children. Um, in some ways, it almost is uh, the role isn't clear though. It's there's more involvement, but what is their actual role? And in some ways, it seems like being unclear. Father, mother are sharing what traditionally was mother's role. You know, in feeding the baby and and um, and that may be the right thing for one family, where it may not be right for another family. And I think that maybe the question just needs to be asked more. Another thing that stands out about pregnancy and, and childhood um, and delivery, um, I, I think because it can be such an intense experience, it really um, puts us up against our own way of dealing with feelings. So um, in some ways, um, that can be a gratifying experience to really overcome whatever, you know, if it's a fear about pregnancy and delivery, about being a parent, um, but you really have to adapt to parenthood. I mean, that's in um, TV and movies all, all the time, but you really, um, we all have our ways of dealing with our feelings and handling them, and sometimes they work out better than others. Um, just looking, again, my own experiences, you know, I like to plan and have time management, I like to exercise. You can't do all that. <laughs> I mean, you just had a newborn baby and your wife needs you and you have to work and pay the bills. Um, so, for instance, for me, I, I have a certain way of, of dealing with my feelings and I couldn't do that anymore, so I had to adapt and figure out a different way. And I think we all face that, uh, generally with big things that happen, but I think especially for pregnancy and delivery. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have to face our feelings and, and manage them as best we can. Mm-hmm. But maybe I'm, anyone else had that experience? <laughs> <laughs>
doesn't only affect delivery in newborns, it's as they grow, you're adapting and changing exactly. sure. all the time. Sure. Yes. Yep. 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 And teenagers. <laughs> can, can you say more? No. <laughs> <laughs> you sound like you speak from experience. <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> um, no, you do learn a lot about yourself. When I had um, Talia, I moved away from my family to another state, and oh. I was really by myself. And oh, wow. um, like, and I um, got pregnant right away after we got married, and I just um, learned a lot about myself. I'm just wondering if looking back even around the world or back in history, is there some kind of cult, is there a culture in your minds that had the most positive attitude toward motherhood and childbirth? I mean, is there something that was... From what I've read, matriarchal cultures have a healthier outlook on pregnancy, birth, and emotions. But I can't say I'm the expert to say how, but that's my impression. Well, there, there are some matriarchal cultures now. There's some uh, African tribes that are matriarchal. There's some in New Zealand, which are Green Islands. There, there are not some matriarchal cultures that still function in that you know, the mother is the, you know, the kind of top, and, and it all surrounds the matriarch. So, But I, I can't say much more than that, but that's an impression that I have. I think what, what Dr. Barrett was referring to is the, the more authoritarian, maybe patriarchal way of, you know, you must do this, you must feed your baby a certain time, you know, and a certain amount of ounces. I mean, it's very rigid and authoritarian. And I think that the whole point of, of I think, these two cases, these two women that I worked with, it, the, the whole idea of spontaneity of emotional expression was just not on anybody else's radar and and yet that is what they vitally needed and they to be able to I think with Jean the first woman I think she had a better labor and delivery because of the two hours <coughs> it relaxed her it was still difficult for her for some reasons but because she when she was in labor and delivery I didn't really say this but when she was going through the birth process when when the staff was being a little more intrusive she would tighten up and tense and I could see it you know, and so, um, but I think me being there, being present, helped her relax in some way and, and allowed her to deliver the baby successfully. So, um, I don't know. <laughs> what, what, what you said about learning about yourself, it's lifelong. My grandchildren are teaching me so much about themselves. There you go. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. We get stirred up in, in, in many ways with babies and, um, not all of us want to learn more about ourselves. Not all, not all of us want to see parts of ourselves. And uh, you know, you wonder how how that affects uh, people's interactions with children and with pregnant mothers. Mm -hmm. um, there's uh, to really, really connect with yourself can be very, very challenging and difficult. And in some ways, if forced to because of interactions with a very lively, healthy young baby. Um, that stirs people up. So that's the other thing we face. Very, very emotional. Well, I'd like to thank all of you for coming and for sharing your, your ideas, your thoughts, and uh, look forward to maybe seeing you again at our future case presentations. Thank you. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you.
What reaction do you have to these patients and their treatment? Do you have any feelings about pregnancy, childbirth, or raising kids? I'm happy to say that our second daughter was born last July and is happy and healthy. Just when I thought I was getting my bearings. <laughs> Truthfully, there's probably nothing more exciting than raising our children, but I've also never felt more vulnerable in my life. What has your experience been? Are you pregnant or raising children? Are you a father? We are interested in your questions and comments. You can connect with us and learn more at adifferentkindofpsychiatry.com or ergonomy.org. If you like our work, be sure to leave a favorable rating. Find more episodes at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get podcasts. Be sure to check out our next episode, which features Dr. Dale Rosen's remarkable treatment of a young girl with terrifying intrusive thoughts. received a desperate call from a mother who said, My nine-year-old daughter is having a nervous breakdown. She's having crazy thoughts at night that we're going to kill her and that terrorists are going to come into her bedroom through the window. She even has crazy thoughts that her father may harm her. I'm afraid she's going insane. I'm Dr. Chris Burrett. Thank you for listening to In Contact with the ACO. Since 1968, the psychiatrists affiliated with the American College of Ergonomy have been helping patients discover greater satisfaction, health, and overall well-being in their lives. Whether patients suffer with mental illness, struggle with addiction, or feel unsatisfied with their work lives or relationships, medical organ therapy as practiced by the physicians at the ACO offers a way forward, often without the use of medication. Music